This is Radio Influence. Week five of the college football season is here. This is Rush the Field, the college football podcast with myself, Scott Seidenberg, and veteran coach and scout Chris Landry from LandryFootball.com. And Chris, the first place that I want to start this week is with the heartbreaking loss because I still feel it, Chris. I still feel for the Oregon Ducks. My good friend Puddles is still crying because of what happened in that game against Stanford. We're talking about them going in to score a touchdown and make it a 34-7 game, but instead a fumble gets returned all the way for a touchdown. The comeback was on. Stanford escapes with a victory. I haven't seen a game play out like this in many years, Chris. Yeah, that was a 14-point turnaround, and it was the first step towards the gradual breakdown uh, of, of Oregon in this game. And of course, a lot's focused on the late fumble, as it should be, but some time management issues on with them having the football and maybe not, uh, and this is part of a little bit of their tempo and their style, but you know, I always say it's important even for the up-tempo teams to learn how to run a four-minute offense and to put themselves in a position where you've got to be able to bleed that clock a little bit. And um, that and turnovers and mistakes down the stretch were the only thing that could have cost them the game, and it did. Credit Stanford did what they needed to do, took advantage of it, but let's call it what it is. Oregon really let that one slip away. And it's a shame because Justin Herbert played as you-know-what off. And this kid might be the first quarterback taken in the draft next year based off what I've seen so far. But what a game he had. And to not come away with the victory... I know it sounds maybe maybe it doesn't sound crazy to you because it doesn't sound crazy to me because I've thought about it. This outcome was probably the best thing for the Pac-12 because I don't believe that Oregon is capable of going undefeated, and I don't think that a one-loss Oregon team makes it to the college football playoff. But Stanford winning this game, in my opinion, keeps the Pac-12 alive for a playoff spot. Well, there's no doubt that if Stanford goes unbeaten, uh, anybody going unbeaten, and obviously at this point it's Stanford with Washington losing to Auburn, um, certainly an unbeaten team. And, and if Stanford's able to beat Notre Dame this week and run the table, which is going to be very difficult to do, by the way, because I don't think Stanford's a great team. But if they were theoretically to be unbeaten, certainly the resume would give them just cause to get in. And we know that if you're unbeaten and win a major conference, you're likely going to get in, whether you're one of the eyes uh, of somebody like myself that may not think they're one of the top four, they're going to get in. So you're right. However, I just don't see that happening. Mm -hmm. I I don't see any team in the Pac-12. In fact, this game kind of showed to me that you know, there's really not a team that's capable out of the Pac-12 of really doing damage in the playoffs. And I think everyone's going to at least have one loss. And we'll see how it shakes out and how that compares to others. But I think it's going to be very difficult. Uh, you know, you could say the same for Oregon. You could say, had they won it, you know, could they have run the table? I mean, there there's a couple possibilities. But you're right, where Stanford is, at least at the start of the season, they've got hope. But I, I just look at them. And, and think that they're a good team, pretty good team, like a whole bunch of them, but they do not look like, uh, nor does anybody at this point look like a playoff caliber team, um, anybody out of the Pac-12 this year. Well, you mentioned Stanford's game coming up this Saturday night against Notre Dame, and Notre Dame made the quarterback switch before their game against Wake Forest. They go to Ian Book, and the way this kid played, Chris, it had me scratching my head to wonder, what did Brian Kelly not see during the weeks in practice that would lead him to make the decision to go with Brandon Wimbush over Ian Book because this offense looked completely different with Book at quarterback. They were moving the ball comfortably. They seemed to be in a rhythm, and this kid is a dynamic playmaker. Well, you don't know. I mean, I, I, I can I can go into situations in the past, and what does everybody say when you start a guy later? Well, it should have been starting the whole time. Well, you don't know how 
he he played and how do you know that the work leading up to that didn't get him ready and that if had you put him in basically if if you had served the meal before it was was completed you might not have gotten the same result it might not have gone down as well i think it came down to wimbush had more experience um he had been a good leader i think that as things developed as he tried to get in more ready to play um i think it was pretty obvious out of just call it desperation urgency that's a better way to put it we need to put him in let's get something going and he did a really good job now again that's one game we need to see how well he's going to do the rest of the way i think he gives them a greater passing game and it was an impressive performance against a pretty decent wake forest team but we'll see going forward how this is going to play out this week at home against stanford whether he can play just as well um they're they're going to have to go to blacksburg for virginia and don't laugh about hey virginia tech's lost to odu they're awful no they're not they're going to play a lot better against notre dame so there'll be some challenges along the way where he's going to have to do a, a, you know a consistently good job like he did last week so like everybody we talked last week right everybody overreacts one week to the next i think this was a good sign for notre dame i think it gives them some promise for the passing game but it's a long way to go yet all right well everyone's going to overreact i'm going to overreact right now chris <laughs> I, I, i'm going to do it because i'm looking at their schedule yes and if they can get past stanford this weekend yes notre dame's running the table and going undefeated, and they're going to be in the college football playoff. That's my overreaction. Uh, yeah, well, and, and I, listen, there, there's not the – you're not going uh, too crazy off the of the, rev, of the reservation there. I think at Virginia Tech will be a challenge. But listen, let's call it like it is. Pitt's not very good. Navy always is a challenge. They'll play that, uh, I believe, in San Diego. So that'll be like a road game for both. But that's always a challenge. But they, but they play Navy every year, so they have an idea how to play. Should be Northwestern, not playing well. How much better will they be? Florida State, got some athletes on defense. Syracuse, um, it, it, then at USC, we know they've got athletes. But you're right. If you look at it, the toughest game that they have is Stanford. So you could see a possibility of them running the table. And if they do... It might look more like the team that ran the table and was outmanned at that point. It was the BCS against Alabama. Mm-hmm. They might be an outmanned team in the playoffs, but you're right. Normally, Notre Dame's really tough schedule. This is a perfect example of you look at it in most years and say, tough, 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 tough. Good teams. Florida State's not very good. USC's not very good. Um, you know, the Michigan win – is definitely the best win that they've had. And the Stanford win, those are the two teams that look like they're really good in Virginia Tech, uh, save for their performance against Old Dominion, would be the next one. Yeah, and 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 that no, that Syracuse game and Syracuse's offense has been really well this year. But that game's at Yankee Stadium, and weather's probably going to be an issue there in mid-November. So I don't know if Syracuse's high-powered offense is going to be uh, lighting up the scoreboard then. So yeah, this Notre Dame team they could have an undefeated season. That does let me ask you this, and I know it's hard to predict now because we don't know how everyone else is going to play out. We don't know what the final records are going to be for anybody else. But does a one-loss Notre Dame team? If their only loss is this game against Stanford, does a one-loss Notre Dame team, I'm not going to ask if they get in, do they get consideration? Because also factor in what you had just mentioned about their schedule being down this year because of the quality of their opponents. Well, you know, in theory, everyone gets considered, but but the the answer to the question, you know, li, you know, what you really are asking, no, I just think that that would be this schedule based upon how weak it's going to turn out to be, not you know, week of scheduling, but just week of the schedule. I think they need to go unbeaten because I, I think if you look at. Um, one-loss teams, and, and Notre Dame gets a lot of play, but this is not polls. If they're looking at it as the best team, uh, no, I just don't see that being the case. Now, if you look at it, we don't know where the first rankings are going to come out. We know right now they're quote-unquote uh, ranked eighth, so they'll get some boost there, but no, I, I don't see it. Um, but again, we don't know what uh, what turmoil we're going to have at the top. 
Uh, we know that the, the likelihood that Alabama and Georgia are on a collision course. Uh, I think both of those teams are demonstrably better than, than Notre Dame. So to me, a one-loss team there would, would trump an unbeaten Notre Dame, in my view. Uh, Clemson looks like they've got a favorable schedule. I think Ohio State is – we've got, uh, I think, a separation right now at least through four weeks that looks pretty elite to me. And I think, as I said last week, you take teams 5 through 20 and you can flip them up and you can you can make a case for any of them being 5, any of them being 20. And I'd probably put an Oklahoma there maybe at 5 in, in, in a decent shot. But I think there's a drop-off after 4. So I, I think we're going to have to have one of those teams drop out. And to me, I don't necessarily think a loss uh, – and I don't know how the committee would do it, but – say, an Alabama-Georgia unbeaten matchup, I still think those are the two best teams in the country Well, yeah, if they they both... The SEC championship game could be meaningless. Like, if they both go undefeated to the SEC title game, they're both still going to the college football playoff. I would think so, and again, I don't know... Again, as you said, it's way too early because it's not just if they win, but we got to watch these teams play. I can tell you at this point, who clearly on film is are the best teams but you know next week it 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 may change for example I thought Alabama and Georgia were really close and I think you could still make a place they're close but what I saw and I take every game and stack it up on top of every other game that they've played and I would say right now I said it was Alabama Georgia and then there's a drop off then there's Ohio State Clemson well, I'm saying now after this past week's games, it's Alabama drop-off, mm-hmm. Georgia, Ohio State-Clemson a little more closer, meaning Georgia didn't play that that clean game, that sharp game, and I study everything. No, I'm not dropping them. I've got them ranked in the same spot. But as I see them, I see them a little differently. Perhaps I'm not going to rule out, and, and I'm going to be open-minded if Notre Dame just plays in a way and dominates in the way that that I, I think that, you know, or anyone else for that matter, is like a Stanford. I just said I don't think they're one of the four best. But if they, in my, in my eyes, if they – prove me wrong at this point or they become appreciably better then I'm certainly open to change it as I will every week based upon film study but I just right now don't see anybody that plays into it but look and we'll get into it in a little bit later you got a big game like Ohio State Penn State we can uh-huh. talk Ohio State all we want boom we could be talking next week about a big Penn State win all of a sudden where does that put Penn State where does that put Ohio State just a lot of football left how the film speaks to me now is not necessarily how it's going to speak to me down the road. And then uh, what I think is one thing, what the committee thinks might be uh, quite different. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we argue every single year, and I'm sure there's going to be something Mm -hmm. that we'll argue about this year, just like, uh, you know, just like the sun comes up every day. We're going to be arguing about it, and it just just happens. Uh, We mentioned the quarterback switch at Notre Dame, Ian Book taking over from Brandon Wimbush, and we'll see where Brian Kelly wants to go moving forward. Dabo Swinney has decided where he's going to go moving forward, and it's going to be Trevor Lawrence, and I think this is the best move for his program. Much like Nick Saban has had to make the decision to stick with Tua, Trevor Lawrence gives them a different dynamic to their passing game that they didn't have with Kelly Bryant. And I'm not trying to knock Kelly because he's a good quarterback. But four more touchdown passes from Trevor Lawrence here against Georgia Tech. The kid is one of the elite passers in the country. I think this was a no-brainer decision from Dabo. Well, I think it's the right time. And I want to give credit to Dabo and, you know, for kind of how he made the decision and in, 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 in where he's gone with it. First of all, I think that for them to advance, I, I think if to win every game on their schedule, they could go with either quarterback. Correct. And, and it could happen. But I think to win a championship, they need more out of their passing game. And to me, that's Trevor Lawrence. So they need more work from him to progress and develop so that when they get to that point, perhaps, and I'm not assuming they're going to get there, folks. I think they will, but we've seen them trip up before. I think that if they get him better and progress, it gives them their best chance of advancing in the playoffs should they make it. Now, with that said, um, 
a lot of people were saying he should have started week one and just go from there. I will submit to you that without Kelly Bryant, they may not win in College Station. Hmm. That game was really close, and some of the move the 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 decisions that Kelly Bryant made saved that offense. So who knows? I mean, I think that Trevor is a guy that's going to make more explosive plays, but will he make the most consistent decisions? Well, with all due respect, and Syracuse beat him last year, and Wake and NC State, Florida State's down, Louisville's bad. You can score points on BC, make them play for I mean, you know, Duke is a challenge. But, but the bottom line is – uh, they can groom and develop Trevor Lawrence, and he doesn't have to be perfect, and they can still win games, I think. And they can still go to Kelly to stabilize things if they need to. But I think it's it's, it's a decision that's made long-term for their, to increase their chances of winning a national title if they get that far. I would I would agree with you. I absolutely would agree with you. And we've seen these coaches, whether it's Dabo, whether it's Nick Saban, you know, uh, uh, Brian Kelly, and, and even, um, you know, even Kirby Smart trying to get Justin Fields in as much as possible and juggling that with Jake Fromm. We've seen this happen. The elite college teams are going to have multiple playmakers, and ultimately the coaches are going to have to make this decision at some point throughout the season who gets more playing time because the team is better off with that guy leading the ship. Yeah, and it's rare to get a guy in there that's a true freshman, like true freshman. We're seeing it out in, 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 in USC with J.T. Daniels, who's not only a true freshman, he's like graduated early. So yeah. he's like should be in high school. Trevor Lawrence is a kid that's a true freshman. So And yeah, Justin Fields as well, top recruited kid in the country. Right, right. But but now, now Trevor's starting, whereas Justin is kind of in that spot play role. Yeah. Whereas Trevor's, he's, you know, for so for what I, my point is, is for Trevor, and I thought there was a chance that physically that they could start him against Furman, and but but you know to hand the ball over to the true freshman at the start of the season is tough. But I I think as you played him more and more, then you get more comfortable with with putting him in that spot. So I think the timing makes some sense. I would agree there. I would agree there. And and we've seen it play out well for other programs, and we're going to continue to see it play out for these elite programs. Uh, I want to ask you a question about a couple of teams that we were high on in recent weeks, and maybe we've kind of leveled off on a little bit. Uh, Mississippi State, very high on them the past couple of weeks, mm-hmm. right? I think some people even graded them as the t- one of the top five teams or six teams in the country based mm-hmm. off the way that they were playing. I'm not saying that they deserve to be, they weren't ranked that high, but some people felt, you know, like the the Vegas strength of the strength of whatever they do, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. They go into a game in Lexington and credit Kentucky for putting together such a solid game plan. They win that game. And now all of a sudden, Mississippi State with that loss drops off in everybody's minds. But should they get a huge drop off based off this loss? Uh, not yet. I mean, first of all, I think the degree in which Kentucky beat him, that's what impressed me. I, I could absolutely – and first of all, I don't think people are given enough respect to this point um, with Kentucky. Games in Lexington, and they really played well. I think Kentucky's a good team. The thing that opened my eyes when breaking down the tape, Scott, was how Kentucky's offensive line so effectively blocked a very good and very deep defensive line of Mississippi State. That was eye-opening. That was Wow, you know this is this is impressive. Good offensive line, but this is this is some Sunday players on that defensive front for Mississippi State. Yeah, and Kentucky did a good job. Now, again, let's let it play out. I think that you're. I think again, it's an overreaction to well. Everyone wants to make the determination. Well, this team is really good, and we don't know who's good. I mean, we we know Alabama's good. We know a few things, but we don't know. That's what the games are for. So they go on the road to Kentucky, and they get beat. Now, if they follow this up, Mississippi State, that is, with a loss to Florida and a loss to Auburn and a loss to LSU, well, guess what? Then 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 we can have the conversation. Boy, this this day this hadn't worked out like we like people thought. But it is one loss. 
Um, it is a loss maybe that some people thought Mississippi State was better. Maybe they underrated Kentucky and overrated Mississippi State and whatnot. But we'll see how this plays out the next couple of weeks in particular. Then they've got a bye week, then go to LSU. So I think the next three games are going to heavily define and answer that question that you had about how good Mississippi State is. By the way, it's going to help determine – uh, how good Florida is, mm-hmm. and whether they're you know just okay, whether, you know, and 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 it's going to determine a lot. It's going to determine a lot. Let's say for a, a team like Kentucky, you know, Kentucky's got South Carolina, hey, big win, but then are you going to shoot yourself in the foot and lose to Kentucky uh, to uh, South Carolina or or Texas A and M the next two weeks? Because that's been the history before. Now they've not had success in Lexington uh, in, in football beating Florida. They did it. Now they beat Mississippi State. Now they're all talking about them, you know, getting the calls. Hey, you know, can they beat Georgia? And I'm like, hey, can you beat South Carolina and A&M first? <laughs> you know, can you, you know, because that's the history. To, do I think there's potential there for them to go into the Georgia game November 3rd, perhaps unbeaten? Oh, there's potential. There's likely going to be one loss, but let's just say there is. I think it's now it's a different scenario for the Kentuckys and the Mississippi States. How do you play with a crown on your head, with everybody patting you on your back? Mm-hmm. You're really good now. You, you're no longer going to sl- you know, slide in and surprise anybody. Now you're the, you're, the, you're the big dog, and now everybody comes after the big dog. So we'll see how you deal with it. And so I think that there's a lot of football left for the Mississippi States and the Kentuckys. I will say this. I've made this conclusion to this point. There is a significant, in my mind, separation between the top teams in the East and the West. Mm-hmm. Georgia, and then there's a big drop. Yes. You can make a case who the second-best team in the East is. That's going to be determined – but there's no doubt Georgia's the best. And in the West, Alabama is clearly the best. And there is no number two. <laughs> you know, there is no number two. Well, there's you know, no number two in the entire country, Chris. No, no but then there's no no two in the in the West. I mean, really. I mean, you could make the case that, you know, Georgia's a solid number two nationally. But, you know, is it LSU? Is it Mississippi State? Is it Auburn? I mean, there's a big drop-off. And I think that's the same way in the East. So – I think it's great to get excited, and for goodness sakes, if you're in Kentucky right now, they don't even care that March that uh, that uh, Midnight Madness is yes. coming up. And they don't care right now. It's great, but let's just in order to make that game meaningful and that win against Florida in Mississippi State meaningful, they got to take care of business against South Carolina. Then they got to go on the road against A and M. It's it. Every game gets bigger, Scott, with every win. Mm-hmm. And that's not something those programs have handled as well. The other thing I would say, these two teams are good and they have better depth. I'm talking Mississippi State and Kentucky right now. These two teams are good and they have better depth than they've had before. However, they don't have the depth of the elite teams like Georgia and Alabama. So how these teams are going to look in early November when, you know, Kentucky's lost a couple of starters. They've been able to overcome it. But but how will, you know, the drop-off to the next best pass rusher if they lose, um, you know, Josh Allen, for example. They're, they're in a world of hurt. He's an elite player. They can't line up with two or three guys that look like him, like Georgia can, like Alabama can. Mm-hmm. So that becomes the issue with – Uneasy, where is the head that wears the crown? But then they're they're not as deep as those other teams. And I'm saying they're not deep; they're just not as deep as the elite teams, and that'll ultimately determine. But but Kentucky, look, you got. I mean, Tennessee is nowhere close to Kentucky right now. Louisville's a bad team. Middle Tennessee's winnable. I I I think they can go on the road and beat Missouri. I think they can go on the road and beat Vanderbilt. Uh, so look, you take care of South Carolina in A and M, and you're unbeaten at that point. And you're six and zero, and you got a bye week, and then you get Vanderbilt, and then Missouri. Uh, 
boy, we can have some as exciting as it is now. It could even be uh, that much more so if they're able to win a couple more games. All right, one more positive, and then we'll get to some negative stories here. Uh, the last positive I want to bring up: Texas, after dropping that first game to Maryland, has reeled off three straight wins. Two of them pretty impressive, uh, going up against USC and then beating TCU at home this past weekend. How has your evaluation of them changed? Well, it's changed. Um, significantly I mean they're playing a lot better together they're get, they're more uh, together on offense and defensively they're leveraging the run better they're tackling better they're playing a lot better football playing inspired football and it just kind of makes you wonder what the heck happened against Maryland but you know at, at that point when I'm sitting there after the Tulsa game and I'm thinking man you, you know the USC game is you go either way and you probably won't beat TCU all of a sudden you win both of those now Again, though, the next challenge. Texas fans are already, you know, crowing, you know, like a peacock now. Well, go on the road and beat Kansas State because this Kansas State team is not playing that well, and they have not beaten Kansas State. Um, I mean, in a long time with Bill Snyder as a the coach. They did it when Bill stepped away. Mm-hmm. They need to go win this game. And, and then then we'll see what they can do against Oklahoma, which, which I don't think they can win that game. But you know what? Uh, who's to say that they can't uh, beat Kansas State and then come back after Oklahoma beat Baylor and Oklahoma State? What was that last week by the Cowboys? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, you look at it, I, I would say that that Oklahoma is doubtful. West Virginia is doubtful, and every other game is probable in terms of wins. This could be a big-time turnaround for Texas, and so I'm very excited to see what they can do with it. Um, and it, again, makes you wonder a little bit of the slow start. Uh, it's probably probably opened up some eyes and probably created some uh, – positive anxiety towards getting things turned around. That was a big win. And I could sit here and say, well, you know, TCU, maybe some of that comes off of that game. They got a lot taken out of them against Ohio State. Hey, that's their problem. Texas was ready to play, and they really did a good job. They they really handled it to TCU. That was a big win for the Horns. All right, Chris, let's get to the, the negative stories here, the bad. Uh, Scott Frost says there's only one way to go from here, and that's up. And, and he's right. Because you're at the bottom right now if you're in Nebraska. There is only one way to go. But that performance against Michigan was flat-out embarrassing. They were non-competitive from the opening whistle to the final gun. Just absolutely uncompetitive against Michigan. And so now you're looking at this team, and, and I'm trying to think, how much did that game being canceled against Akron hurt them to start the season? And I don't know if they would have beat Akron, but hey, they're better. They're more talented. They could have come out of the gates, got a first win, got the crowd hyped up. But they had that opportunity to do that in their first home game against Colorado, and they didn't do it. Colorado's a much better opponent, obviously, than Akron. Then they lose to Troy, and then the ugly game last week. It could get uglier. Because Purdue is a tough team to play against. Then they go on the road to Wisconsin, on the road against Northwestern. We could be looking at an 0-6 Nebraska team, Chris. Well, we could. And to answer your question, you know, let's make the assumption that they beat Akron. Maybe it makes a difference. Maybe it gets things on the right frame of mind. And maybe between Colorado and Troy, maybe they're able to win one of those two. I don't know. We'll never know. Um, Where I think it matters is and I know this looks like an impossibility at this point but at that point you know they needed that Akron game to give them a real chance I thought to get bowl eligible yeah they're which, not going to win six games which you know right now is going to be very very difficult to do now look let me say this that he inherited some issues there the talent level's not very good and they've got to they've got to correct that and that's not going to be corrected right now that's going to be re- corrected in recruiting but what needs to be corrected now is a little bit of an attitude change how they work how they do things and you you see Scott talking a lot about it but you know at some point in all the comments is is he's going to have to start producing something on the field. Now, listen, it's a different situation. This is his first year. But, like, for example, you know, I thought uh, I thought Tom Herman, we just talked about Texas. He looked just after the Tulsa game, after they barely won that game, after losing to Maryland, he looked like he didn't have any answers. Mm-hmm. He looked like deer in the headlights. 
Uh, he's turned it around. Now, Nebraska's not quite in that position to have that turnaround, but they're capable of beating Purdue. They're capable of beating Northwestern. They're capable of beating Minnesota. They're capable of beating Illinois. Um, there's some wins on the schedule. I don't know how many they're going to get. I don't know if they're going to get maybe but one or two. I think, though, what he's going to have to do is instill some confidence. Listen, they're behind him 100%. But let me just say this about Scott. Everybody thought it was the perfect hire, and it's the perfect hire. He's a Nebraska guy. He's won at a, at a place um, in, in Central Florida. But look, he's a guy that, that knows how to coach offense one way. And he's not someone that I would call as experienced at taking whatever you got and getting the most out of it. So I think this, I think Nebraska under Scott Frost, I'm going to just say let's, let's go forward to the second, third, fourth year. I think Scott could get Nebraska playing better ball and maybe being where Wisconsin is. I'm hearing this a lot. I mean, I've been hearing people say things like, this guy is going to be the next Nick Saban and they're going to win championships. That's not happening at Nebraska in this day and age. I hate to break that to people. Nebraska's not going on some national championship run starting in four years. I think they can be what Wisconsin is. That is, maybe even replace Wisconsin as the best team in the West. But, you know, this is not a team that's going to be a dominant program. I think it can be good, but, you know, they're not going to be Ohio State. You know, they're not going to be, you know, other programs are going to have to come down to them. And I, I, I don't say that based upon the first few games. I'm saying that based upon where I think the potential is in this day and age with Nebraska. Everyone talks about Nebraska in terms of what it used to be. But let me explain what it used to be at Nebraska. In the old days, and I'm going to go back to the big eight days in Tom Osborne. Here's how it played out, folks. There was there was eight teams in the league, okay, and everybody in the in the entire Big Eight sucked except for <laughs> Nebraska and Oklahoma and eventually Colorado with Bill McCartney. And the way it worked at Nebraska, they'd schedule their first four games at home, and they would be like, you know, Eastern Illinois and yeah. you know Western, and they'd be four and zero, and then they would get then they would get into conference play and they'd play Iowa State and then Kansas and they'd score seventy and then they they if they beat Oklahoma they went to the Orange Bowl if they lost Oklahoma they went to another bowl. My point is is that's not the way it is now. Nebraska at those times you you weren't on TV all the time. So Nebraska was on TV as much as anybody in the country. Now everybody is on TV all the time, and everybody has TV money. So Nebraska's facilities, which at one point were the best and the only ones that had the mega weight rooms and the football ops center, now everybody's got them. So nothing separates Nebraska anymore from the rest. And so now what Scott's going to have to do is get into California, get into Texas, and to get into Florida and get some of these top-notch players and that is what's going to make Nebraska maybe get to, and I think if he gets those athletes, maybe surpass Wisconsin in a few years. But I think that the people that think that Scott Frost is going to just come around, is the boy, the fairhead boy coming home, that we just need to find a Nebraska guy, and we're going to be Tom Osborne again and Bob Devaney again, it's not going to happen. It's not. And and I think that good is expected greatness. I would uh, would not anticipate that. What'd you make of Old Dominion defeating Virginia Tech? The Hokies completely overlooked this opponent, and I get that sometimes. Like you know, when these programs pay the schools, or the schools get paid to go uh, mm-hmm. to go, and they have a home game. You know, I don't think Virginia Tech paid because this game was at Old Dominion. So. Maybe they should have paid to make sure that, that game was at Lane Stadium instead. It was some financial restitution. It was kind of a state fund because they're an in-state school. So uh, they made out okay, and, and they've done a nice job with their program. But you're right, uh, Virginia Tech wasn't ready to play. I think Justin Fuente hinted at it when he said, I told my team, you know, I liked you guys when you were underdog getting ready to play Florida State. But you know what? You're not the same team when you line up and practice this week. And that it showed. Here's the thing that jumped out at me was how Old Dominion just crushed 
Bud Foster's defense to like 600 yards. I mean, it was just Which is unheard of. Incredible. Incredible. That tells you all you need to know about the readiness of Virginia Tech to play. With all due respect, Old Dominion, it was about Virginia Tech and what they didn't do. Yeah. And it's disappointing. And another team that overlooked their opponent was Oklahoma against Army. The Black Knights of the Hudson, Chris, go into Norman, and they, they give Oklahoma everything they had. They go to overtime, and Oklahoma pulls out a victory. You know, I think it's really tough for teams that play the service academies that don't play them regularly. We just talked about Navy and Notre Dame plays. Well, they play them every year. They play year. every year, yes. Clemson plays Georgia Tech every year. Now, you don't just throw out a scheme. The schemes don't beat you. Georgia Tech hadn't been as good as Navy, quite mm-hmm. frankly, in how they run it and, and the athletes they have. But my point is, if you see it, a, Oklahoma doesn't see it. They couldn't stop it to save their life. They don't see it. They don't prepare for it. If this game was the first game of the year, eh, they probably probably a different game. If this game's in a bowl game, probably a different game. But in the middle of the season, that is a tough nut to crack. And, you know, maybe it's a little overlooking. I, I tell you, based upon I know how I know how those practices go preparing for it, I don't know if they overlooked it. I, I just think it's hard to try to step over those cut blocks and mm-hmm. those things. It's just tough, and it's really tough. That was one of those exhales for Oklahoma. Uh, and their defense in Oklahoma, defense is not really good. Well, guess what? When you have the football for 48 minutes, <laughs> and Oklahoma's <laughs> offense didn't 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 have a bad day, they didn't have the football. Yes. You, when you got Army that controls the football, a, a vulnerable Oklahoma defense to begin with that's now playing – an offense that they never see, and they and they can't get off the field, and their offense can't get the football. You could kind of see how that would happen. Not that I anticipated this game to go this way, but that's how this things happen. That's how these things happen. Yeah, and it's crazy because in the Big Twelve, all you see is shotgun and passing spread, and spread. Passing. Yes, you don't that, see that. You don't see. You a, don't see a, not a, forget about a triple option. You don't see a run first team. That's exactly <laughs> right. In fact, it's one of the things about Notre Dame's schedule that's unique is that they see Navy, they see spread, they see you know mm-hmm. uh, a pro style. They kind of have to prepare for more things. Where if you're in a Big 12, defensively, you're playing basically one style uh, with some modifications. The SEC, you're playing one style, modifications, ACC, so on and so forth. Big 10, um, so on and so forth. But but you get a you get a mixture of, of, of a lot of things. Oklahoma doesn't see that mixture. They see, saw something that was foreign to them. Uh, Chris, before we get into some of the matchups for this Saturday, we already touched on Notre Dame-Stanford a bit, but before we get to the other matchups, let's run the option like we do each and every week on the program, and to remind our listeners, what we do is we throw out a topic and we decide whether we want to keep it and run with it, or we want to pitch the football and get rid of it. The first topic I'm going to say is, you know what? Bryant-Denny Stadium's getting a little uh, renovation because of a, an injury. You know, Dylan Moses crashes into a wall on the sideline, and all of a sudden people are like, hey, now we should probably push the walls back because they're too close to the field. Chris, I'm I'm pitching this idea because this is something that should have been done years ago. How did no one think Alabama's been playing in that stadium since God knows when? How did no one figure out, hey, you know what? These walls might be a little too close to the field. Well, I can tell you how. You know, they kind of figured out they can get a few more butts in the street, <laughs> a few more money. Money always wins, but no, that that figures out. You know, it's like anything else. They don't put the stop sign up to somebody gets in the accident, somebody's hurt. That's what it is. It's it's one of those things you they try to inch in every little thing. It, it's tougher today. You know, it's it, 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 it's 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 a lot of things. You know, it's look at the stadiums today. The old stadiums, they've had to change seatings. You know. <laughs> as a society, we've become, uh, let's just say, our rear ends as a society are a lot bigger than it used to be yeah. in the 40s. And some of those stadiums have to be redone. It, that's what we're getting is let's let's find another place to put a seat so that we can charge a ticket. And sometimes you get a little too aggressive with that. So, yeah, they should have figured that a long time ago. But until somebody hits in it, and don't pay attention to that stuff. I'm with you. How about this? Our podcast name is called Rush the Field. Well, in Kentucky, they got fined 
for the fans rushing the field. $100,000 for violating the access policy, the SEC policy on the uh, fans' access to the field. This is so ridiculous. I'm pitching this because, Chris, I know it's about safety and whatnot, but this is one of the greatest scenes in college sports when fans rush the field and celebrate with their classmates with a huge victory. I love seeing the swarm of fans onto the field. Heck, I did it when Rutgers beat Louisville. I, I was I was part of the group that was a little too early, but I did it when Rutgers beat Louisville. So I think that finding the school, I'm pitching this idea. Well, I'm going to keep it um, because I, I'm with you. I think it's exciting. And first of all, I mean, for goodness sakes, those Kentucky fans, uh, they, they didn't have many uh, chances. Now, we'll say this. <laughs> I hate to, to rain on Kentucky's parade, but I don't know if you remember the Bluegrass Miracle, but the fans rushed the field in that game uh, back when Nick Saban was coaching LSU. They beat LSU, except... (laughs) LSU completed a Hail Mary on the final play. So <laughs> Kentucky rushed the field, and LSU was the one running off the field with the win, and there was the most blank looks. Of, that was the most embarrassing rush to the field ever. So, uh, no, but but uh, let me say this. I, I'm okay with it. I like it. But then I also remember the tragedies at Wisconsin when they rushed the fields and the, the young kids were pinned into the fence. I, you know, it's one of those things that I do worry about, safety, and it is great. And, and it's one of those things, enjoy it, it's fun, it's great. I actually admit I like to see them rush the field too. But if somebody gets hurt, mm-hmm. it's going to be something, or worse, we're going to all say, oh my God, how do we allow ourselves to for this to happen? And it's happened before, and if we don't watch it, it can happen again. Yeah, storm in the court, same thing in uh, college basketball mm-hmm. as well. We absolutely love to see it, but as long as everybody is safe. Before we get into this week's games and preview some of the big matchups, like we mentioned, Notre Dame and Stanford, I want to tell you about Vivid Seats. You know, Vivid Seats is an online event ticket marketplace dedicated to providing fans of live entertainment with experiences that last a lifetime. And with Vivid Seats, listeners can watch their favorite teams and artists perform live in person. Vivid Seats helps fans find their seats to any of their favorite live events, including sports, concerts, theater, and more. Vivid Seats offers great prices and an easy purchasing experience. With the podcast code INFLUENCE, listeners can receive 10% off your first purchase with Vivid Vivid Seats. So go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. Enter promo code INFLUENCE. That's I-N-F-L-U-E-N-C-E to receive 10% off your first purchase with Vivid Seats. All Vivid Seats confirmed orders are backed by a 100% guarantee. All right, let's take a look at this Saturday's games, uh, some interesting matchups. I'm going to go with, uh, I'll start this off, Chris, and I'll say that Syracuse is going to give Clemson a hard time in a shootout game there at Memorial Stadium. Well, if they do, you know, it, it to me will say a lot about this Clemson team. I think we're deep enough into this season. They are should have revenge on their mind for what they consider an embarrassing performance last year against Syracuse. So if Clemson doesn't come out from the start and put their foot on Syracuse's neck, I think it says a little bit about not projecting out, but saying, hey, right now this team doesn't have that finish, that fire to just dominate an opponent. So I would be surprised if they didn't handle Syracuse handily. Over under five touchdown passes for for Will Greer against Texas Tech in a game that'll probably be seventy to sixty. Probably Tech, <laughs> Tech played a little bit better. Uh, boy, I tell you what, Texas Tech played well against Oklahoma State. Hard to figure Mike Gundy's team uh, last week, but no, I would say over. I think that there are going to be a lot of touchdowns, a lot of points. This West Virginia team's really, really good. Um, Will Greer is outstanding. Like their receivers, like them going the road here. They're this is the one team that, to me, can challenge Oklahoma in the Big 12. Yep. Um, and, and listen, it's about taking care of business. 
But going to Lubbock, uh, listen, uh, Lubbock's not the end of the earth, but you can see it from there. So you got to go there and be careful. Um, you know, it's an early start. So this is, you know, kind of traveling across there. It's a little bit of an adjustment. This is a trap game. But Tech has been that type of team. They have a big performance, then they'll have a bad performance. I think West Virginia gets them here. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, yeah, the game's going to be very, very high scoring. Well, Saturday night's where it's at, Chris. It, we got three marquee games on three different networks. You got Ohio State, Penn State. That's the Saturday night ABC game. Notre Dame and Stanford's going to be on NBC. And then Fox has a pretty good game in BYU and Washington. Don't, you know, don't just ignore that game because that's a pretty good one out there uh, in the Pacific Northwest. We mentioned Stanford and Notre Dame, but let's focus here on Ohio State and Penn State. It's going to be a whiteout, right, at Beaver Stadium. Mm-hmm. They're all going to go a sea of white in the crowd. It's going to be an incredible atmosphere between two top 10 teams. What can Penn State do to slow down Dwayne Haskins in this Ohio State offense? Well, I think you've got to really do a good job with your base pressure. I think you got to mix up your coverages. you got to have enough guy to cover. I think you can blitz them, but at your own risk. I think that Ohio State's got the receivers that can really take advantage of Penn State's secondary and man coverage. So I think if Penn State's got a blitz, they better get home quickly, um, and they better get there. I, I think that Penn State's success defensively is they've got to mix up their fronts. Um, they've got to get there with four- and five-man pressure and I think they got to play a lot of two-deep coverage and prevent the big play. Force Ohio State to go in long drives, and that's what they need to do. And then I think it really helps with the emotion of the game, and it will be a great setting. Love this setting. Love uh, uh, Happy Valley, and uh, in particularly at night. Um, this is going to be a lot, of, a lot of fun. They need to get off to a good start. Penn State, um, you know, I think offensively has really developed. I, if it's a close game, I like Trace McSorley's ability mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to will a team in close games. So special teams are going to be important. The running games are going to be important. Obviously, big plays are always crucial here. Uh, Penn State's running the ball well. I didn't think they played well against Illinois in the first half, but I thought they had a lot to do. 35 fourth quarter points. You can't yeah, I thought, that. I thought they just kind of just took care of business in the second half on Friday night. It's a Friday night, and that'll be interesting too, by the way, as we get into these Big Ten Friday night games. Watch, the, the teams on the road, uh, I'll be in trouble, particularly when you got a big game like this. First thing I'm thinking was, typical James Franklin team, not quite ready to play this mm-hmm. week, but you know they're going to be prepared uh, this week. It's a bye week next week. I think this is going to be all hands on deck, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I think it's a close call. I think Ohio State is a little better athletically. I like their chances in games like this. I think they've got a little bit more defensively, but without Nick Bosa, that hurts them. Yes. I still think the Buckeyes are the better team here. We'll see if they can pull it out. And you mentioned it before, the running game, and I think that's going to be the best defense for Penn State is going to be their rushing offense because if they can keep the Buckeyes off the field, they're going to win this game. So if they're running the ball, whether it's Sanders, whether it's Trace McSorley, if they can win the time of possession battle, then Penn State will win this game over Ohio State. And I'm going to tell you, Miles Sanders is good. And I know he's not Saquon Barkley, but when he's running, he does some Saquon Barkley type stuff. I mean, they they can run the football. Can he do it for four quarters? You get behind in this game, it's going to be tough for Penn State. How about BYU-Washington? This game goes overlooked because everyone's focused on the two top ten matchups, but I think this is going to be a pretty good game and a pretty good test for Washington. It will be. I mean, BYU's a good line of scrimmage team. I think it'll be a defensive-oriented game. Um, I think it'll be a little bit like the the Utah game for Washington, and I think you know, kind of one of those 21-7, 21-10 type games is the way I see it. Uh, not very explosive. You got to contain BYU's rushing attack, uh, and you got to find a way. Browning is going to have to make some plays, and you know, listen, they don't have the dynamic playmakers in their passing game. Gaskins is going to have to have a big game in the passing game in addition to the run game. Uh, but I do like Washington here. I like how well prepared they are at home. I think they get it done. One final game: Does LSU avoid a letdown against Ole Miss? Probably so. Although I still don't trust LSU in, in some big moments. I just 
don't know that Ole Miss's defense is going to be good enough, but I'll say this. If Ole Miss can get some early points and make LSU's offense a little bit uncomfortable, uh, you got a problem. In other words, if LSU can run a balanced offense, Ole Miss is not going to stop them because they just are not good enough defensively. But if LSU is, they get behind, meaning Ole Miss gets some points and LSU has to go and be a pass-oriented team, they have to be 60 65% pass, Ole Miss can absolutely beat them. I, I just uh, I don't think – don't really think LSU is the type of team that offensively is very good yet, but I think that they can control the line of scrimmage in this game. Ole Miss is a de- Ole Miss defense is just not showing the pulse yet this year, um, so this is definitely going to have to be a game in which they come in and perform very very well offensively uh, to get it done. You guys can always follow along on Twitter with the program. I'm on Twitter at Scott's on Air. Chris is on Twitter at Landry Football, and the folks at LandryFootball.com want you to join their family for this football season. You get in on all the inside information and analysis on the college and the pro game, from film room breakdowns to all the latest inside information, recruiting, draft, coaching news, all of that. Plus, each Tuesday and Thursday, you get the Landry Football Podcast, and each Wednesday, new episodes of this Rush the Field College Football Podcasts. Check out LandryFootball.com today for their best season membership package ever. For less than a magazine subscription, you can have access to the insights, of veteran coach and scout Chris Landry. Tell them where you heard this to receive their best membership package available. Chris, I'm on LandryFootball.com right now. I'm looking at some film room previews, but what else can I find? Oh, boy, it's it's one-stop shopping football, uh, college, the NFL game. Here's what we do. In the early part of the week, we spend Monday, Tuesday, we look at film every day. So Monday is a big film day, and we pre- put all the college breakdowns. So we've got about half of them, got about 27, I think 28 of them today. All the co- major college teams, and, and either, that, that we break down how they looked inside the film room in the game uh, this past week. We'll have the rest of them tomorrow, um, and and we do the same with the NFL. All the breakdowns. Then, as we get into midday tomorrow, we'll start previewing all the games of this next week. So, the games that Scott and I talked about. This is an In the Trenches with Ian Beckles. Quick fix on Radio Influence. We have some good football players. And we have some football players who just like to read the press clippings. Once again, I, I write notes before. I wrote notes before the show, before I watched the, that game yesterday. And I said in my notes, go after Earl Thomas because Chris Conti is not a good football player. Okay? Everybody knows that one play was awful. I mean, it might have been one of the worst I've seen. I mean, he got straight-armed into his mouth. He put, in, he put his hand in his mouth three times. And then he tried to trip him. <laughs> That's going to be, you don't want to see that on ESPN. That's going to be played forever, okay? That was, that was bad. Earl Thomas, who sits out, comes back one game, gets two interceptions. Then he tells the Seahawks, you guys have kissed my ass. I'm not practicing. I got a, I got a hangnail. He literally said, he goes, if I get a headache, I'm not practicing. No way. They don't take care of me. Good for you, Earl. They don't take care of him. He's out there busting his ass and everybody else around the league's getting paid. And you got to sit and watch other people get paid. Go get Earl Thomas. Chris Conti's not good. Okay. He's not good. He hasn't been good. I don't know how Jason Light hasn't figured out a way to, to, to get somebody to take, take over Chris Conti's job. I thought it was going to be Keith Tandy. They released him. I, don't, I just don't know what that situation was. Chris Conti is three steps late to every party. He's old now to be making rookie mistakes and be getting housed. Like, he got, he got housed. In the Trenches with Ian Beckles can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. <laughs>